Google's Borg system is a cluster manager that powers the applications running across Google's massive infrastructure. Borg provided inspiration for open source tools like Apache Mesos and Kubernetes. Over the last decade, some of the largest new technology companies have built their own systems that fulfill the roles of cluster management and resource scheduling. Netflix, Twitter, and Facebook have all spoken about their internal projects to make distributed systems resource allocation more economical. These companies find themselves continually reinventing scheduling and orchestration. With inspiration from Google Borg, and their own internal experiences running large numbers of containers and virtual machines. Uber's engineering team has built a cluster scheduler called Peloton. Peloton is based on Apache Mesos and is architected to handle a wide range of workloads, data science jobs like Hadoop MapReduce, long-running services such as a ride-sharing marketplace service, monitoring daemons like Uber's M3 Collector, and database services such as MySQL. Min Kai and Mayank Bansal are engineers at Uber who work on Peloton. When they set out to create Peloton, they looked at the existing schedulers in the ecosystem, including Kubernetes, Mesos, Hadoop's Yarn system, and Borg itself. Both Min and Mayank join the show today to give a brief history of distributed systems schedulers and to discuss their work on Peloton. They've been working in the world of distributed systems schedulers for many years including experiences building core Hadoop infrastructure and virtual machine schedulers at VMware. Before we get started, I want to mention that the company that I'm working on called Find Collabs is holding a hackathon. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators for your projects or to find projects that other people have posted that you want to work on them with. You can go to findcollabs.com slash hackathon to find out more, or you can listen back to the episode I did a couple weeks ago called Find Collabs. Min Kai, you are a senior staff engineer at Uber, and Mayank Bonsal, you're a staff engineer at Uber. Guys, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. So you're the developers of the Peloton resource scheduler from Uber. Let's start off with some basics. What is a resource scheduler? So a resource scheduler is something which we can use to orchestrate all the workloads to a dif- to different machines or di- and different set of clusters. And we do it because we wanted to run all the workloads in the isolations, in the containers, and uh, we do resource-aware scheduling that which machines have the loads to run those jobs or those containers. And that's what the resource scheduler is, is pretty much orchestrate the all kind of workloads. And Peloton is pretty much um, orchestrating batch workloads, uh, stateless workloads, stateful workloads. So this is how resource scheduler works. Every operating system has a scheduler. My phone has a scheduler. My laptop has a scheduler. But we're talking here about a larger scale type of scheduler, a scheduler that can schedule resources across multiple machines. How do the paradigms between a single node scheduler, like the one on my laptop, how does that compare to a multi-node scheduler, like what goes on in a data center? 
yeah so so single node uh, single node scheduler is pretty much responsible for that single machine so let's say if i have a laptop and if i have a scheduler so i can use a single node scheduler to run some of the workloads on on that machine it only correct that's a single point of failure if that machine goes down that scheduler is down and then we need to have um, again that scheduler will bootstrap and then again pick up the workloads in a multi node scheduler let's say if i have 100 or 1000 machines and one scheduler which is managing all those 1000 machines so first of all it needs to be very much scalable it needs to be able to scale manage compute resources of those thousands or hundreds of thousands of machines correct and then try to find out what is the need of each workloads and then place those workloads on an appropriate machine out of those 1000 machine because those 1000 machines need or need not to be a uh, similar so they may be a different attributes they may have a different uh, resource requirements and they may have a different profile so we to match those profile with these different kind of workloads and what is the optimal sweet spot for those workloads to run on those machine that's how this multiple node scheduler works and that's very important because as and in all the big companies we have thousands of machine which runs on a scheduler and then how you optimally run all the workloads as well as how you do all kind of high availability on those schedulers right because these workloads cannot wait let's say if the scheduler goes down the machines goes down you need to be very very much fault tolerant you need to be very much highly available so this is the difference between the single node scheduler and uh, multi node scheduler do you want to add anything min yeah i think that's pretty much well said so that's pretty much well said so typically like a single node scheduler like for example in the kernel we have um CPU schedulers, right? So those will decide at any given time how much CPU shares will give to a given uh, process, which is like, but there's not really a placement decision you have to, to do. Even there's some placement decision if you want to ping a CPU to certain cores, those will be very small scale. But as Mayang said, like at Uber, we're targeting for a cluster with close to 10,000 nodes. Those are non-trivial amount of resources to manage as well as a non-trivial amount of workloads. We are dealing with close to like a million containers uh, most of the time to be placed across those 10,000 to 25,000. Right. So is this what makes the Uber case unique? Because there have been so many distributed systems scheduling tools in the past. There have been, you've got what Netflix built with, with Titus, you've got just Mesos itself, you've got Kubernetes, all these different things that have been built in the past, and you guys set out to build your own Peloton. So what is so unique about Uber that made you need to build a new scheduler? I think it's not about a unique of Uber. It's about Uber has some kind of use case compared to many other companies. I think this is pretty much the same requirement for many companies. By the way, this is not like never been done before. Actually, Google has this already, which is called Borg, which is Google internally used. Uh, and Facebook has something called Tupperware, but they are actually have the same vision as us as well, like collocating different workloads. With any company like Uber, when you reach to a certain scale, you would like to optimize the resource utilization of your computer infrastructure because that's a non-trivial amount of investment. The unique thing about Peloton is we are probably the first one in the open source world which trying to do collocation of mixed workload with the target to with the target 
or the objective to improve the utilization of the clusters in, ter in terms of collocating batch and non-running workload. So as you said, like Kubernetes is doing the same thing, but Kubernetes is right now at the current scale, they are more for the cloud, not for uh, big on-premise data centers. Also, there are some other like placement strategies we have in Peloton, which has some unique advantages compared to uh, our features compared to Kubernetes. We actually had a, a, a tech talk with Mayank, uh, with uh, and the team uh, in the Kubercon uh, last uh, year, talk about uh, the comparison between Peloton and the Kubernetes. So let me a little bit uh, add to what Min also said, right? So when we started Paladin, we looked at what is the current paradigm of all the schedulers we have. We looked at Yarn, we looked at Kubernetes at that time, and we looked at Mesos, Aurora, and all those workloads, uh, all those schedulers. And we found out, uh, me and Min actually did a lot of investigation before we actually propose this project uh, we found out that there is a gap in the industry every company right now or most of the bigger companies right now have these thousands of machine clusters of hadoop which runs bad jobs and thousands of machines of uh, which uh, stateless clusters which is which is mostly on mesos at that time and we found out they cannot share resources between each other right and there was no scheduler at that time and it's true for now in open source that which can merge all the workloads together then we thought we should be able to write and then we kind of tried one scheduler on top of other scheduler which didn't work out because of uh, we wanted to solve the efficiency problem in the system however by running one scheduler on top of another scheduler it still creates the partitioning into the clusters which is not getting the results which we want so we thought we should have one compute engine for all kind of workloads it's, whether it's a batch workloads whether it's a hadoop workloads whether it's a stateless workloads or a stateful workloads and if we can run together everything and if we can optimally place all these workloads together on the single machine and the cluster of machines, then we can get the efficiency out of the system and that's where the Peloton born. Currently, as Min said, we have the we have the no other scheduler other than Yarn is good at scheduling batch workloads. Kubernetes is doing some of the batch scheduling, but it's not that good. We have the talk into the KubeCon and then we presented the numbers to the community as well. So Mesos Aurora is good for stateless, but not batch. So there was not something there to do it. So that's the reason me and Min started Peloton. This difference in workload characteristics across different types of jobs, I want to give more color to what this means. So when you say a batch job, that might be like, I want to run a job that's going to ETL, or it's going to take data from one place and put it into another. It's a ton of data, so it's going to take some time. We need to spin up some machines to do this work, and then they need to spin down once they're done. That's it, just a batch workload. You've also got services that need to be up for a long period of time and serve requests. Maybe they're stateful services like a database service, like a Cassandra or a Postgres. Maybe they're uh, stateless services, like you just make a request and you get a response and it's it's not doing any, any database workloads. You could also have monitoring workloads where you've got some container agent that's just sitting there and, and monitoring some other service. And then you've got this pool of resources that anytime a user, an engineer needs to spin up a new service, that service is going to pull from this pool of resources. And so this comes out to being a, a very complicated problem. It's, it sounds like a knapsack problem or you know a stable matching kind of problem. 
Can you just give us a little bit more flavor on what is the variety of workload types? Why do these workload types differ? Why can't we just throw any kind of compute resource at any kind of workload? Uh, that's a good question. So, as, as you said, like for any like big companies like Uber, you naturally will have those. We kind of categorize them into four type of workload. As as you have just said, there's a batch workload, which is a, a container which is gonna run through completion. So you can think of like a Spark jobs, Spark jobs, TensorFlow jobs, or any like big data jobs, right? And the interesting part of that is those jobs normally has are not that latency sensitive, as, as you just said. Then there's another category jobs, which is microservices, which are latency sensitive. And what we found out is, it's a very, uh, by the way, there's one big um, interesting part of how to improve the utilization of a cluster, the only technology to get there is called overcommit, oversubscription. But it's very difficult to oversubscribe latency-sensitive services because you have to provision, you have to always over-provision your microservices to the peak so you can have guaranteed response time. For example, at Uber, we have a service group called Marketplace Services and for example, whenever you request uh, uh, Uber rides on your phone, you're going to have those requests to hit those service. Those services have to be uh, response very fast. And you have to always over-provision your computer resource to make sure they always have enough resource to run. But that, that means in the off-peak time, then your utilization will be low. And batch workload is actually a very good category of workload to mix in in the off-peak time or when the time the online service is not busy. So you can push your uh, computer utilization high. So so what you're saying there at the peak is, and I remember this with when I was looking at Netflix stuff, you know, Netflix users are always watching at like 6 or 8 p.m. They're watching tons of movies. And then, you know, at, at 8 in the morning, everybody's going to work and so you can run batch jobs at 8 in the morning to do data science because you don't have to allocate those same servers to be running services to serve movies to people. Yeah, that's exactly the motivation. So that's why kind of collocation of mixed workload is very important for improving cluster utilization. Yeah. Then another aspect is it's going to reduce operational overhead as well because otherwise you don't, you don't have to have like a Typically, in within a big company like Uber, you will have multiple one team for one type of workload, right. or multiple team for one type of workload. For example, you have a Spark team, you have TensorFlow team, and if every team need to manage their own cluster, then there are lots of operational overhead to provisioning and managing those physical machines as well. So I will more add color to the different kind of workloads. The one is the batch workloads, which is, uh, as Min said, this is the which completes. So multiple batch workloads are like the Hadoop workloads, Spark workloads, all the machine learning workloads, and all the distrib- deep learning workloads, right? All these workloads has different categories, which is uh, training and then the serving, right? So the training, all these trainings and offline training can be done at the non-peak hours, as we said, right? And then that's how you increase the utilization of this combined cluster. And that's where this power of Piloton or the clusters which can schedule all kind of workloads together. Similarly, stateless services, as Min said, we have all status SLA sensitive services, which needs to be up all time and 
can take peak workloads at any time right and but most of the time those are not at the peak so we can use those resources to run all these offline training jobs or the bad jobs correct and then there is another kind of workload which is stateful which is very much sensitive to the data and the sense which has a different categorization like it's very sensitive to the data it needs so all the data needs to be present so we we cannot move machines in the state full workloads right so that's another category where you it's provision for the peaks as well as it's sensitive to the data it has to be stickiness on the machines right so this is another kind of workloads and then there is a monitoring workloads or demons workload which needs to run all the machines which is not as much sensitive but it's important to run on each machines which is ensuring the health of the cluster so all these kind of workloads if we run together we can get the efficiency from the system by placing them at the time when there is no peak or they're placing them at the time when there is a peak right so doing these decisions intelligently will help improving the cluster utilization as well as many much teams as min said there is no operational overhead they don't need to maintain their own clusters they don't need to maintain provision for the peaks for each cluster because we don't want the static partitioning in each organization and each cluster we want one big compute stack where everybody can come and run so i want we want actually people not think about the machines we want people to think about the containers we want people to think about i want 5 cpu that's it how and where i will run it that doesn't matter so that is where we we are going yeah. from peloton perspective yeah so now i want to talk about other schedulers other orchestration tools i want to go through some of the research that you guys reviewed when you were scoping out peloton because i really want to drive home the fact that this was not like a you know just a, a walk in the park and decide let's just build an uber scheduler because why not you guys are very experienced men you worked at vmware for eight years i think and myank you worked at yahoo for many years you worked on the uzi project you've worked on core hadoop infrastructure so this was not like just a, a side project this was Uber had a very significant need here, perhaps a need that is represented more broadly in the industry by other large companies that have large data center, large scheduling issues. So when you were sitting down and reviewing the literature that was out there, you obviously have the Borg project from Google. Google's published a couple Borg papers. You've got Kubernetes, which was based on Borg, but is not as mature as Borg, but Kubernetes actually is open source. Borg is not open source. You've got the Mesos project. You've got Hadoop's Yarn system. So when you were doing that initial research, and you're looking at these different systems, and, and you you already said you you basically figured out okay, well none of these were really built for workloads that can go onto a data center, really large scale infrastructure, and and Uber does run its own data centers, right? So so what you find in that initial research, like you you said you liked the approach of Borg, but Borg is not open source. What did you like about Borg? One thing I think Borg has been Done very nicely is kind of mixing the collocating or cost scheduling、uh, mixed workload. So that's also kind of、uh, we have lots of people from Google today working at Uber, right? So so basically, you know, the experience with Borg has been very nice because they have been set up that very upfront, meaning that the Borg has been invented at Google very early. And then all the workload they manage them to only running on Borg. Like very few people in Google can get a physical hardware, <laughs> so that's where. And they have like very large scale too. 
And internally from the blog paper, they have very high utilization, which much higher than what we have today at Uber, which the person tried to push for towards, but without collocating or scheduling mixed workload, we basically figured out like we cannot really do that. How, how do you measure utilization? By so the way? basically, we we looked like there are actually class-wide utilization is actually very tricky. So basically, you can measure like individual hosts and then do average across all the machines in the cluster, and then do P99s, P95 of individual could be like over like three days, seven days, or monthly. There are lots of like uh, dimensions in the metrics. But in short, you know, I started the Mesos project at Uber as well. So basically, back then, like three years ago, we adopted Mesos and plus a scheduler from Twitter, which is called Aurora. We are running that for all the Uber microservices. But that's actually much better than have assigning, statically assigning a, a set of machines for one sub for each service. But even with the Mesos and Aurora, we cannot push the utilization to, to be too high. So that's still a much lower number compared to what the Borg has showed in the paper. Then we also invest, look into, can we just use Aurora to run batch workload? And we did some benchmark. Basically, Aurora is like far away from what Young can do today. So that's why we have to invent Peloton. So back to your question about the Borg, I think the nice thing about the Borg is it's designed for mixed workload to begin with, at least from the paper, <laughs> what we saw. I think the scale is there, and we didn't really have any available open source solution, which kind of equivalent to Borg. I will add a little bit here is, so when we were starting Peloton, we looked, looked at Yarn, and we thought, okay, uh, we looked at what is the Yarn capabilities at that time. And that time, in fact, right now also, it's not good for scheduling all the stateless workloads. It's not good at scheduling, doing upgrade workflows and all that stuff, which is a need of any stateless services or the latency-sensitive services. Those are missing from the yarn. We looked at um, Aurora, Mesos. Those were good at upgrade all these uh, primitives of the stateless services, however, were not good for the uh, batch workloads. They were not able to handle the scale which yarn could handle, right? We looked at Kubernetes. It was starting at that time and it was not as much popular as it is right now. However, still right now, there is a very big gap of running batch workload. It's good for running stateless jobs and the deployments, but it's not good for the batch. So we could get whatever information is available from Google. On so, the- by the way, why, why not? Why not? Why, where does Kubernetes fall over with the batch workloads? So we did some experiments, right? And then there are internal choke points at Kubernetes right now, which is, I think we talked in our Peloton KubeCon talk also, where we we identified some of the choke points. We they, Those choke points are like scheduling, throttling, and ETCD, uh, how Kubernetes use ETCDs. So all these com- combinations actually have we cannot scale Kubernetes. So let's say we, we tested like for 550,000 tasks in one job or 100,000 tasks in one job, which Kubernetes could not scale. However, we, we have those numbers in the slides that Peloton can scale. So these are the different schedulers we looked at it. We had the all the literature from Borg, which is published outside. We don't have any other information. Right. We might not be just... We, so we thought maybe out of the literature which we had, it, it's interesting enough for us to go in that direction to get those efficiency into the system. And that's when we decided, okay, I had a lot of experience in Yarn because I've been working on Yarn for a long time. 
Yarn, this is the scheduler from Hadoop. From Hadoop, yes, exactly. So I'm one of the Hadoop committer too. I was working on Yarn earlier, and then I took those learnings and I took all the uh, and Min got all the learnings from Mesos and Aurora, which he uh, did, and then we kind of thought, okay, this is something which we need to build for Uber yeah. specifically, and that was a gap in the industry too. So we probably wanted to see if we can fill that gap as well. Yeah. Now, one one thing I was looking at with Peloton is that there is there's something called a hierarchical max-min fairness model in in the scheduling system. So I know that when you're you're choosing how to allocate jobs to resources or how to pair jobs together with resources, you can do that scheduling. You can do that that pairing based on a priority like a user can say i have this is a high priority job these are like payments that are going to go out to partner drivers or something like that you know something that would be really high priority but there's other models for how you allocate resources to jobs that one this hierarchical max min fairness can you i guess contrast priority based scheduling and hierarchical max min fairness yeah, sure. So this is where Peloton is different than Borg, at right. least based on that literature which we have. So Borg has these priority bands where they identify the priority of each workload across companies and then they say this priority band will run higher priority and then the other workloads. So they need to go and find out the priority at the global level, at the company level where they identify each job and put it into a band and then run them. Correct. So that's a good way to sub- support priorities. However, there is some, we found out there are some gaps in this approach. And the, one of the gap is, let's say if I have a, if I am an organization within a company and I, every organization have some quota to run in every, in the compute resources. So if I am a, if at any certain point of time, if my high priority jobs are not running, then as a, as an organization within a company, I want my lower priority jobs to run within that quota but because of this priority banding you cannot do that even if your higher priority bands are free you cannot go it because your lower priority bands cannot go and run on the high priority band resources right so that was the gap we found out and we i've been running i've been working on yarn and min was in drs scheduler in vmware so we in yarn and drs we we were using a hierarchical min max min fairness model where each organization will be assigned a quota and the priority will be relative to only for that organization. So we call them um, resource pool. So resource pool is a virtual entity within so that that identifies an organization which says I have, let's say, 100 CPU, a quota. So we'll let you run any workloads based on the priority you define and that priority is within that resource pool and you don't need to go and identify the whole priority across company so you are you know in your team which jobs are which priority and you can go and run those job and then we scheduler can go and identify which priority is which and then you know schedule it accordingly however these mix man mix max min fairness also allow you to go and get the additional quota from other organizations if they are not using it Right. So if let's say there are two organizations, organization one and organization two, organization two is not using the quota right now because there is not much enough workloads. So organization one 
can go and borrow the resources from them however when the organization one comes two comes in and says i need more quota then paladin is able to preempt the jobs which is running over their quota for organization one and give resources back to organization two so this is the difference between the hermic maximum fairness as well as the priority bands did you find out anything else when you were scoping out this project? You know, you talked to some Borg people, uh, you talked to some Googlers. Did you find anything else that they talked about in in the construction of Borg that was not, you know, maybe either not in the paper or just pe- people hadn't really picked up from the paper? Because the paper is very deep. The Borg paper is very deep. So I, was there anything else that you found that uh, you ended up implementing in Peloton? I mean, I don't think we we get any other information other than what is there in the paper. So what? So we had the view whatever is published literature from Google. We didn't have anything else other than what is published. Okay. And so that was enough to. There was just more information in the Borg paper that hadn't been implemented in Kubernetes, for example. Or I guess put put another way, like when you when you look at kubernetes so kubernetes was was supposedly was was kind of based on borg i'm just wondering kubernetes has a scheduler in it right so how does the kubernetes scheduler compare to what you wanted to build with peloton so yeah let me clarify this i think at least from our understanding of borg or by our talking to other googlers many of them are really senior people the architecture of kubernetes are quite different than borg so Borg is actually kind of, basically if you look at the Borg, right, it's basically have a Borg master and a Borglet. And the Borg master is basically active hot standby mode. You have like one Borg master leader and then um, four followers. For example, like one feature in Borg, which is not in Kubernetes today, is uh, in Kubernetes, is Borg does a, they call a linked shard. So let's say you have 10,000 node agents or 20,000 agents. They were doing sharding, like one-fifth of those agents were reporting to one Borgmaster. And then they, the, each Borgmaster will do some aggregations and reporting to the leader. So that's why how Borg can scale to a much larger, bigger cluster than Kubernetes. Because Kubernetes right now basically using API server, all the Kubernetes will watch and post the node status to Kubernetes, uh, to Kubernetes API server, then it's going to hit ETCD. And ETCD is not shareable today. So basically, all those will hit one ETCD master. There's some scalability limitations of Kubernetes. And uh, also, in some uh, sense, there's some other design philosophies that are different in Kubernetes. For example, in Kubernetes, all the information about a pod is like they have spec, which is user provided input, as well as the status. They are all stored in one uh, ETCD um, node. And whenever there are any state change, they have to re- re- make a copy of the whole thing. So that's also kind of limiting some of the Kubernetes uh, scalability as well. Then from a scheduling perspective, for example, yes, Kubernetes does allow us to plug in different schedulers. But the scheduler in Kubernetes is more like we call it placement engine in Peloton. So it's basically decide where, which uh, container should be running on which machine. They don't really decide how much resource should this particular user use at any given time? So back to what Mayank said, the nice feature in Peloton is the resource pools basically give you elastic resource sharings between different organizations. So in Kubernetes, they have something called a quota manager, which is still static today. So basically, if you allocate like a 
$10,000 course for this organization if that organization is not using it. Other people still cannot use that quota. That is a whole, that is a differentiator for Peloton also. One of the differentiator is that we allow elastically grow and shrink resources between different quota boundaries, which is not present at least in Kubernetes right now, which is present in uh, Yarn, but that is also not good for stateless workloads. So, so these are the different things because we don't want to have a, any statically partitioning into the our cluster be- to increase the utilization. For increasing utilization, we need to remove those static partitioning. The one thing that stands out to me about the Peloton project that also stood out to me in uh, a show I did a while ago about the, the Uber data platform is that you've really architected something for the long term. This is a really long time horizon project. It, it's not like a, let's spin up the MVP, let's move as fast as we can. It's like, we're going to build this thing that's going to be a core piece of infrastructure for the lifetime of the company. How is that different? Like, Could you contrast the idea of building core infrastructure that's going to last for the lifetime of the company and the development process, the architecture process, the testing process, the release process, how does that differ from something like, you know, a, some production microservice that's going to get like rotated out in a couple of years? The basic difference between building a core infrastructure piece than a service is we need to think about not the current workloads. We need to think about the workloads will, which will be there in the company for down the line five years. And can we support that many load into our system? How we'll do? So the difference between HA, the difference between us, uh, infrastructure and uh, services is core infrastructure and the services is that sort of core services can go down and multiple instances will come up again. We can restart them. We can bring them somewhere else. Core infrastructure, you go, don't have that liberty. You you need to be highly scalable you need to be highly available your latencies cannot grow after a certain amount of time you have to be do all kind of fault tolerance you need to think through each and every condition and you cannot do it until i mean in one shot so that's a iterative process so we you put it in production you get all the feedback you again iterate on it so these things gets time to build microservices can be built faster than a core infrastructure. You have to be thoroughly tested. Your each check-in into the code has to be go through a performance test in core infrastructure. So these are the something best practices you need to build into your development process. And of course, you get bugs, you get production outages, and you learn from them, and then you iterate over them. So that's what we did. Yeah, actually, I, I totally agree with you. Like, core infrastructure is a big investment. I don't know if it's a lifetime investment for a company, but it's definitely a significant investment. For example, like Borg has been at Google for more than 10 years, I think. But I guess even then, they updated to Omega. Which, uh, yeah, but which... that, that failed, right? Because uh, you couldn't not easily replace something like Borg to some new system. Oh, did Omega fail? Yeah. Oh, I thought it, I thought it was like a, uh, an upgrade. No, Omega didn't. Uh, at least from what we learned, Omega didn't really replace Borg. Wow. They borrowed some idea from Omega and improved Borg, but they didn't really um, able to replace it. And I actually even asked some of my friends at Google, say, hey, when do you guys think you can replace Borg with uh-huh. Kubernetes? Uh, they said, that's probably pretty far long out of there. So 
yeah, but I think you're absolutely right. That's very uh, tricky to, or very, you needed like deliberate thinking to for those uh, kind of software. Uh, that's why actually when we started Peloton, the first thing we had is uh, we call a performance test. So we actually had like uh, running Peloton on top of Peloton as a virtual cluster. Because you need to test like large number of nodes and uh, large job after every basically we are doing after every change land to master we 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 bring up a virtual cluster and we run performance test and also we invest in some thing called a failure test which is we simulate different failure cases in the system and then make sure every all the failure is recovered and behaves uh, as expected so those kind of things you you know you're not People are doing that for critical microservices, like Uber's marketplace service, but uh, not uh, like an average low-priority low uh, microservices. There are multiple ways that a user might want to interact with Peloton. There's a UI, there's a CLI, there's an API. What are the different ways that a user might want to interface with the Peloton system? We have multiple uh, ways, right? We, ha- As you said, we have UI, we have CLIs, we have Peloton clients. So Peloton is a good part is Peloton exposes the gRPC interfaces. So by that, any any language you can use those gRPC steps and, you know, call Peloton. So we have the Java client, we have Go client, we have Python client within Uber where we can interact with those. So there is a well-defined APIs and uh, we can build any external client. So people have their different orchestration engine on top of Peloton APIs, which uses Peloton client and interact with it. People go and use CLI to interact with it. People go to the UI and interact with it. So, so there are multiple ways we can do it. Yeah, in addition to that, basically, as Mayank said, we already have multiple um, extensions or solutions built on top of Peloton. So today, there are more than 10 systems within Uber using Peloton APIs. So, for example, if you are a microservice developer, you will go to Udeploy, which is our Uber internal deployment system, and that will that can submit jobs through Peloton uh, to, uh, to Peloton through the API. Then, if you are a batch user, like if you want to launch some Spark job, then we have a job server for Spark, which talks to uh, called Dragon, which uses the Peloton API talk to Peloton to submit jobs. Then if you are machine learning users want to submit a TensorFlow job, you will most likely go to MacAngela, which is a machine learning platform, which uses the Peloton API to launch jobs as well. And then if there are some infrastructure services, they can directly use the Peloton CLI and the Peloton job file to launch those jobs. One component in Peloton is the storage gateway. What is the storage gateway? The storage gateway is basically like a storage ab- abstraction. We had um, between Peloton and the actual storage um, systems. For example, today we are using Cassandra for Peloton as a storage engine. But the storage gateway is abstract out of that interaction, so we can plug in other storage solutions like MySQL or potentially ETCD or other uh, storage systems. So, so what does that mean? Does that mean if I spin up a MySQL cluster, every write to that MySQL database goes through Cassandra? Oh, no, no, no. So basically, the storage gateway is a library within Peloton. So basically, all the application code in the Peloton don't need to know is Cassandra or, or MySQL. 
So Peloton needs to be stored its metadata to some storage. So for that metadata, we have this storage gateway where we can plug in any storage. So we had like uh, Cassandra, we had like MySQL. You can tomorrow we can write a driver for any other storage we want to. So that abstracts away all the Peloton demons to interact with the storage. So they don't need to worry about. It. They just talk to interface, <coughs> and interface is implemented for a specific storage. Now, could you map that to like? the Kubernetes world? Like, does, does Kubernetes have a storage gateway? Uh, yes, actually, Kubernetes does have something similar. If you look at the API server, they have a storage interface, which abstracts out the ETCD okay. uh, backend. Okay. So you could potentially plug in something else if they opens up that uh, interface. Okay. So basically, you have the storage gateway that is an interface into whatever you're using to maintain some consistency, like configuration logic for the stuff that you need you need consistent. Yes, something you need persistence. Oh, persistent. Yeah, so that's, that's why it's a database. Okay. For example, like um, people submit a job, you have to uh, persist all those job specs. And also uh, for the job status or whatever job has been completed, you have to com- persist all the completion information. Okay, I think I understand. Because because I know that Mesos uses Zookeeper, and so... Not really. Actually, oh, Mesos, it's not? Yeah, Mesos using Zookeeper as a lead election, okay. but its persistent state is in something called a replicated log, which is a Paxos... Uh, basically, Mesos is very similar to Borg model, so you basically have a built-in storage engine in the process, which writes um, something called a replicated log into disk as a file. And, but you have to be highly available. That's why they run Paxos uh, protocols. So every write goes to all the five nodes. And they were, they were dumping the data in each, lo- uh, each, uh, each file uh, yeah. in different machines. Uh, by the way, that's also how Aurora, the scheduler from Twitter, is using. And that has, has been the performance bottleneck for Aurora as well. So actually, we have like the, some Aurora developer has been express said in before like one thing they have been regulated is they should have a separate database solutions instead of using the <laughs> replication logs basically building a storage system or database system is hard right so you want you don't want to like build this yourself like um, you should off- offload some mature s- storage system so let me a little bit abstract this out right so each scheduler or each resource manager needs some storage to store all the job metadata, all the status, all the history information, because you can go back and see what is what happened to my job. So you want that uh, persistence. For uh, recovery, uh, you need, let's say if the scheduler goes down, then you need, when you come up, you need somewhere to recover from. And that's, as Min said, Aurora is being using replicated logs. Yarn uses HDFS. Uh, Kubernetes uses ETCD. And that's how Peloton is also using so Cassandra or MySQL, which we can plug in. Yeah, that's helpful. And and people who are are deeply curious about this can go read the Peloton blog post, which has a lot of detail on the on the overall system. Now I know we're we're running out of time here, so I, I want to talk a little bit about the usage. So if I'm a user and I want to spin up, maybe I want to spin up a service. It's got a Redis cluster alongside it, or maybe I'm spinning up a data science job. Give me a little more detail on my usage. Do I need to know a lot about how Peloton works, or do I just make some simple request to it to spin up resources? What's the usage model? So for that, actually, it's 
pretty simple. So uh, first thing you have to do is you have to get a resource pool in Peloton, which is similar to you need a namespace in, in Kubernetes. Resource pool is going to basically tell you how much resource you have uh, reserved or elastically you can borrow from other people. Then you can write a, we call it a Peloton job file which is similar to the Kubernetes uh, job YAML file, where, where you're going to specify some metadata of your job, how many instances you're going to have, and what other container image you're going to use, what other entry point script you're going to have. And then you just run a Peloton. You can use Peloton CLI to submit that job to Peloton. And then you can use UI to watch the, uh, the, the status of those uh, containers and then look at the logs. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. And to what degree is Peloton deployed to production today? You mean within Uber? Yeah, within Uber. We are in all the data centers Uber has. Is it managing all the infrastructure? Uh, not not yet. So basically, we are the only, I don't know. Oh, okay. That's fine. So uh, basically, we are like in... You're rolling it out. Yes. Slowly but surely. I think we've been in production for a long time. And we are in all the data centers, as Min said. We are in thousands of machines and running a lot of containers. Still, we are moving all kind of workloads slowly and steadily to the Peloton platform. What's the vision for the future of the project? The future is basically Peloton is, um, I think we are still in the early time of the journey. So right now, the first thing is we need to onboard all the workloads to Peloton. Then we can do lots of fancy stuff to, to improve the utilization or optimize the uh, placement algorithm, scheduling algorithm, all those things. So the vision is pretty much to move all Uber workloads to Peloton. So that is the long-term vision. So we've been executing on that vision, and then I think we are somewhere in middle or less than middle, and then there is a long way to go. Yeah, but basically, you know, right now we're pretty much ready for. Basically, we're pretty much like in the process of migrating batch workload right now. And uh, we're going to be imp- starting migrating all this microservice workload, which is a big chunk of the Uber compute, uh, work- uh, compute uh, workload today to Peloton, hopefully in next quarter. If everything works okay, we'll probably be able to wrap up by early next year. Awesome. So that, at that time, then Peloton will be, have a significant footprint in Uber's data centers. That's great. And the end result will be you'll save a bunch of resources, you'll save a bunch of money. Oh, yeah, that's actually going to be substantial. Yeah, cool. Well, guys, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Thank you so much for inviting us. It was fun talking about the Peloton. (laughs) Wow.